Welcome to the Dillentance Podcast. Welcome to What Is It About Bob Dylan? I'm Jim Salvucci, and today we are talking to Craig Daniloff. Craig Daniloff is the host of Dylan FM, which is a podcast and website he's running as part of the Freak Music Club. With not being an obsessive Dylan fan, he's a technology entrepreneur who has founded a series of companies, most recently relating to consumer privacy and identity verification. 20 plus years ago, Craig wrote 20 plus computer books, mostly about software that no longer exists. As part of Dylan FM, he does a weekly news recap of all things Dylan that you can find at freakmusic.substack.com, and I highly recommend you check that out. How you doing, Craig? I'm good, Jim. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. So what is it about Bob Dylan? Well, nothing I need to explain probably to anyone that would listen to this, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm a lyrics guy. I, I like the attitude. I like the smart, nuance, cleverness. You know, I came from Costello first, which is a good training ground to, to come to come to Dylan, Dylan with. I, I do I do buy the Jan Wenner quote that he's our greatest singer and that no one else is even close. You know that that expressiveness and ability to convey um, emotions, you know, beyond the words, which is, you know, I think what catches us all. Um, you know, I also agree with Paul Williams' idea that he's the live performer first and foremost, and so um, I've been able to see him quite a few times and and enjoy that part of it. And now, obviously, we have video and bootlegs to keep us busy more time than we have. So, you know, I, everything in the world, the, the fact that the world's so big also appeals to me. You know, you can't you can go anywhere in in this universe of Bob Dylan and never run out which is amazing, but it's also fun because you can tire of a, a, a decade or an era or a type of song or a topic and, and go find some more. So it, there's enough there to keep me busy. So just about everything. How many times have you seen Dylan? It's, it's plus or minus 100. It's a pretty good number. Wow. Any standout concerts? Definitely some standout concerts. So um, my, my first was in... In 81, uh, which dates me a little bit, but I used to have, in, in high school, I used to take concert photos. So I would, uh, I don't know how I wiggled a pass, but I could kind of go every night to this outdoor theater and see whoever was there. And I'd usually stay for 15 minutes, shoot some pictures, and leave. So I saw um, what I now know was a warm-up tour for the gospel shows in 81 before... I just walked in that night because someone was on stage, you know, not going to Dylan. Uh, and I, I shot a few rolls of film that um, I keep meaning to go find, which out of all the effort I put in, you think I would have located, but they're in some parents' garage somewhere back in Detroit. So anyway, that had no effect on me. I mean, I enjoyed it, but I didn't think about it. I, in 88, I lived in Boulder, and I went to the fifth show of the NeverEnding Tour no expectation just because I just went and it was the closest thing to a religious epiphany I will ever have in my life. I just walked out of there floating. Fortunately, there's a soundboard of that Denver 88 show available, which is great to relive. Um, and after that, I would say in 2005, he played five nights at the beacon and I went to every night and was double a center elbows on the stage each night, and there was a little speaker with his voice coming out only, which is about the greatest sound mix 
version you can have. Anyway, the Thursday night show there was another one. You know, people talk about these special nights, and everyone, I think, has their own. Sometimes they're shared. I rode the subway home that night. I don't think my feet were touching the floor. That that was that was the best. So show number five in 88 and, and Thursday night at the Beacon are the two that I'll always uh, think about the most. What made the uh, the show at the Beacon, the Thursday night at the Beacon, so special? You know, we've got tapes of all those nights, and I'm, I'm, it's interesting when you, everyone listening to this knows when you go to a show, the tape just doesn't capture it all. It's a great night. The set list then, I think we had Hazel. I'm not sure it was, it was Thursday and a lot of other amazing songs. You know, whatever that magic thing that turns on in Bob or that Bob transmits to an audience, and you're just in a thing that words aren't, aren't going to describe. But it's interesting to see five nights in a row and have one massively elevated. The tapes don't carry it, but for me, for whatever reason, that night, you know, it was a different thing. That's great. You know, you have a pretty rich history with seeing Bob. I mean, if you've seen that many shows and I mean, I've seen 25 and I, that's quite a few and nothing compared to you. You know, and I think for a lot of people who haven't seen that many times, they maybe get that, that, that enrichment that you've gotten just by seeing so many and, um, you know, getting all those differences and those nuances and, and that feel for seeing them night after night, which really is a special thing to do. Yeah. And I think, I think with Dylan, I think the way all of us who are at this level do it, you know, you got to do your homework and be ready. You know, you got to know, obviously, you know, the kind of, I can't understand the words thing you hear is from people. I totally get that. You walk in that room, having listened to the albums and not knowing all the stuff we know, it's just a completely different sound and experience. And when I see someone else who I'm not so deep on, I try to take note and appreciate that, wow, I, I don't know what the hell this guy's doing. I can't barely make out these songs. It could be almost anybody, you know, who doesn't play note for note album reproductions. So I think you got to know what to expect and be ready. And I always, because I often can see multiple shows, the first show I try to take in a certain way. It, it's kind of a warm up show. I don't expect much. I kind of hang back and you get to focus in. You know, I think almost everything in the world is a series of grayscale and you're tuned to, uh, to, to break it out. You know, you do see black and white, you start to see some, some, a couple of colors or all of a sudden you can define and identify nuance. And I think Bob Live is kind of like that. And then you, of course, got to have, you know, a lack of some asshole next to you screaming or singing along to not ruin it, <laughs> which you need to see enough shows that, you know, you need, the another benefit of seeing enough shows is when that happens, you don't have to become murderous because hopefully he won't be there the next night. Right. That's true. That is true. Yeah. So sort of the, the full spectrum of the Bob Dylan experience there is when you see so many shows from black to white to Technicolor. Yeah, I wish I had a better um, detailed memory. I mean, I, I I can't really remember. I remember some things, but, you know, this song and then that song or whatever. It, the tapes help. I have a separate little pile of the shows I was at, and I kind of relive them. And, of course, over time, you, you know the tapes more than, you know, what you heard. But I, I do remember the sensation, you know, of many of the shows and kind of the the way the years felt. But But you hear these people who remember you know, guitar licks and special fills. And I wish I had that kind of memory. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm much like you. So, so tell me a little bit more about yourself. Um, I gave you a little biography, but what, tell me something more about you. Well, you know, I'm old enough to have seen Dylan in 81. Uh, as, as you mentioned, 
professionally, I've been a startup guy my whole life. I've started seven or eight venture-backed startups. So I, I work in technology. I've kind of ridden the wave of, of the internet from the very beginning in the mid-90s to now, kind of just doing things essentially around the way the internet has changed our lives. Um, grew up in the Midwest, like Bob, moved west, moved back east. And uh, I live in New York City now, as you know. And uh, that, that means I get to see a lot of concerts from a whole lot of people, which is one of the best things about being here. Yeah, for sure. I, I used the term with you, uh, you're, you're a Dylanpreneur. <laughs> um, you've sort of adopted this, this way of approaching Dylan um, as a fan, but also as a businessman. Um, you have a sort of a vision. Tell me a little bit more about your, your vision. Well, yeah, it is. It really is a combination of, of personal desire and what I want as a fan and what I'd like to see in terms of the way I, I experience music and my economic sense of the way the music industry is, you know, kind of a mess. So at a high level, I, I want to rebuild the music industry and the entire economic model. We're going to have to go in steps, but there, there really is a, an idea here that I think plays out, which is some kind of a subscription service that makes it easier and more rewarding to follow artists. Because what, what the hardcore Dylan fans know is it's a lot of time and a lot of work you know, to, to follow and learn and track everything. And that's great, and I think we, we get a lot of reward out of it personally. I mean, we all enjoy it. It's why we do it. But most people don't have that kind of time. There's a lot of people who love Dylan, millions of people who love Dylan, who cannot possibly spend the time and energy we all do. And essentially, I, I'm... I think I'd like to arbitrage the time and make it efficient to get the same benefit. In other words, you don't have to troll forums and log on and, you know, read a million books, but essentially condense that down and, and make it simple to take as much as you want, but go deeper. I think there's also a big gulf, right? The casual fans enjoy Dylan and they love him effectively just as much, but they don't get the benefit of all that analysis and, facts and information and, and or the fun of it so i, I want to find a way to package it so you can take go as far as you want and it's just easier effectively and i think economically you know we have this problem that artists get paid for music and artists get paid for concerts and i'd like to see that relationship broadened now we're not talking about dylan now and my sort of view my vision for this goes far beyond dylan but um you know, essentially, I'd like to see their artists get rewarded for the passion they inspire that you spend over years on a band. And so script subscription model conceptually works for that. In other words, the idea would be you like an artist, you pay a few bucks a month, you the albums and the concerts come, but all the rest is managed in a way that right now it's not. Right now, being a fan is a completely self-service enterprise. And you know, I know you and I like a lot of different music. There's a lot of people I like that I don't go learn more about and I don't keep up on new releases or you know when they guest somewhere or even know they're in town till they're gone and that's a problem I, so I'd like to get I'd pay a few bucks to be taken care of and the way the artists come into this I think at scale and especially for the mid-tier artists again Dylan's a very weird case they should get paid for that too right so so if the fans kick in a few bucks we can create a better experience for them, making it easier for them to, you know, through emails and websites and podcasts and all kinds of information. Um, 
but we can kick some money to the artists as well. And if you think about mid-tier artists um, who have a lot of fans but only put out an album every year or two and can only haul their ass to town every once in a while, I kind of think they should get paid for that passion, but there's things they can contribute. So that's kind of the big idea. Sort of uh, combining the uh, the digest approach, right? That, that curated sampling approach with almost a concierge's mentality too the fan gets taken care of yeah it's it's you know look there's a million tiny baby things um even before the last few years you know people had fan clubs and in effect i'm trying to reinvent the fan club although you know there's a lot of baggage to that word but bands have had fan clubs you know springsteen kiss neil young has his archives project and they 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 do certain things and now we're in the age of you know a lot of Bands have Patreons and podcasts and other ways that they do a few things and get a few bucks. Um, I'm just trying to professionalize it, you know, in effect, and say, well, first of all, there's bands in the Dylan world, obviously, doing passion projects that have gone for years and years and years, like Affecting Rain and, you know, Writers and Critics and all these amazing websites that we all go to. That's unbelievable. A, all those guys should be able to get paid. Right now, there's no way they can, and there's a lot of reasons for that. One is no one's put the mechanics together around for them to do it. Do they don't have any more time because they're spending all their time, you know, doing what they do. And I'm not saying everything needs to be paid. There can be a ton of free stuff, but right now we're at the limit of what people will do for free. And if people were getting even a little money or being paid reasonably for these things, what if we had the professional or the great versions? And it could be the exact same people. Right. I mean, we could feed money to the people who are already doing it, um, you know, just for passion reasons. So it's, you know, taking the subscription model, providing a service that I think is a great deal. You look at how much people spend on this now. Right. We're all about to go buy a new box set. It's going to cost us 50 or 80 or 100 bucks. Tickets to a show now are crazy. Right. But they're at least 100 bucks or more. So I think this time of, you know, we buy books for 20 and 30 dollars a pop. There's enough money there because this this it and there's enough fans. You know, I, I think about Netflix a lot. You know, there's a reason they can spend eight billion on content because ten bucks a month from a lot of people is a lot of money. And if you do the math on this world and say if a bunch of people give you ten bucks, what could you do that would be worthwhile for them? And that's essentially what I'm working on. It's a lot, and I think people would be happy to pay ten bucks if they're getting an easier way to go as deep as they want. And then if we're supporting the, the mid-tier artists, again, if imagine that you're doing this and you're a fan of five or 10 artists, and all of a sudden that artist is getting 50 grand a year, 100 grand a year, or 200 grand a year, just because of that relationship, they're having the fans, but not them. These are not the right people to log on and do blog posts and upload things. I don't want my favorite artist thinking about this junk. I want someone else to provide the infrastructure. So there's a lot there, but it, and it's all pieces that exist in other parts of the world. I'm just trying to bring it to a world that right now is, um, uh, you know, passion driven and, and, but has limit. Yeah, I love it. Speaking of the, the, the next box set fragments, yeah, you just spent the last year focused, um, like a laser beam on time out of mind for its 25th anniversary. And now we're about to get the box set. Um, what do you, what do you think about that? You have any plans? Well, uh, we have a lot of plans. We have some special people we're going to talk to as we approach the before and after of the release. You know, I focused on Time Out of Mind because I do love it. It was a big anniversary I saw coming, and it was a way for me to work this out. It was just a, a topic that I could play with and see what I could build and, and you know, what, what could happen. 
I think it's going to be very interesting because there's. I just read this new Whirly Gig book. I'm going to publish a review probably before this comes out. Um, I don't know if you've seen that this this book just came out. Uh, this guy named John Lewis went down to Tulsa and spent time listened to 500 master tapes from from time out of mind, and he uh, knew Jim Dickinson well and and tells us another missing part of the story. So, um, you know, from what happened in Oxnard to what happened in Miami to what happened post-production, I, I think it's going to be great. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to all, you know, all parts of it. I mean, the, the, the outtakes, the remix, the live stuff. And I don't, I don't mind that they, uh, that they threw the Telltale Sign stuff in the box as well. And, and the book, you know, those books are usually amazing. I think people probably don't get enough time and energy from enough attention from most people. You know, you stare at it maybe the day or two you get it people work hard on those things and there's some amazing photographs in there you, you go back and look at them you forget you saw them so uh I, i'm i'm super looking forward to the, the box yeah i haven't checked out the worldly good book but it looks pretty pretty fascinating um just a real insider's view based on all those archives it's incredible yeah have you been to the bob Dylan center no i was i was and until all of a sudden 17, I guess it was for the first event before the center existed, and uh, I didn't go down for the opening. I didn't, I didn't uh, know it was going to be such a big deal, or I didn't have the right invitation at the time. But I, I'm planning to get there as soon as I can. I really wanted to go before the end of the year because uh, the original idea was that the exhibits were going to change. But I, I heard they're they're a little behind schedule on that, which is good. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try to go down early in the year, and of course, we'll definitely be there in May for the for the next conference. Yeah, right. That's going to be pretty pretty much a blowout. I heard your interview with uh, Sean Latham, which was a great interview. Um, and he's he's looking at maybe double the number of people who showed up for the first World of Bob Dylan conference, which is pretty amazing because it was a big crowd. Yeah. It's going to be exciting. It's incredible that that, that resource exists, obviously, and that, that we have that. It's been a rich time to be a Dylan fan for the last decade or two. But the idea that, A, you know, these archives exist that Bob kept all this stuff and be that now there's teams of professional paid, you know, archivists applying energy to them and then preparing stuff that we can go see and enjoy or, or that guys like John Lewis or, you know, Ann Margaret Daniel or, or other people can go use to produce material. It's, it's just incredible. So you've, you've interviewed some really amazing people um over the past year on your your podcast um and you know gotten really into the heads of some some great people and what what's your general impression of the state of dylanology we'll say you've got a pretty good overview i think you're in a unique position well look you know i i think people don't get passionate about dylan if they're not reasonably cerebral broad-minded articulate so it's it's kind of a self-selecting interesting set of folks it, you also maybe have to have an extra screw or a screw loose or something to be this passionate and hardcore so that only adds to the kind of texture of how interesting you know the the, the gang is um I, I also think there's kind of a strange humility in it in that you know we all love this guy and think he's you know just so incredibly good but know that We've had to live with the fact that a lot of people don't see it in the world. You know, he, he, there's incredible respect and admiration and things have come out in the last 10 or years where he's really on this pedestal now. But we all know people just don't like him. And 
I kind of think it's good. Meaning, if if you if you if everyone just loved him kind of axiomatically, like you know some other artist I won't name, it's not so filtered and self-selecting. You know, and I think it makes us humble in a in a weird way. I mean, we think he's amazing, but I don't think every, every people aren't um, unrealistic about the way they treat him in the world. You know, so anyway, the Dylan people are so they're wonderfully helpful. Um, you know, I started this project like you know like I, I know something about the project. You know, you're doing with this is what this podcast as well. You know, you call people up. No one said no to me. Um, I remember when I, you know, first reached out to Mark Howard. You know, it was just kind of shocking that I could get the engineer on time out of mind to talk to me, let alone agree. And it it builds from there. But no one has said no. Fans, authors, you know, insiders. It's just been you know fantastic. Dylan's an interesting place to start a project like this, which I intended to use, you know, go to other artists on because it's the richest minefield in the world. You got, um, you know, people like Mitch Blank, you know, down the road here in New York, who has, you know, done things that maybe have never been done in any other artist in the world. I mean, he's spent his whole life collecting and building this stuff that much of which is now going to Tulsa, but who will just sit and talk with you and tell you stories and, and share and share things. So the, the Dylan fan base is amazing. It's just fantastic. It it makes the fun side of this right. A lot of the hobby or a lot of the passion at some point right isn't entirely about the music. Um, and it's great to get to connect with so many people who uh, each have their own take on it, and so many that really work hard to add value. Tell me about some of the other music you enjoy. Well. I got that little Apple email about end of the year summary recently, and I was pleased to see my uh, I had seventeen hundred different artists. So I figured I should I should put that on my forehead since everyone thinks I listen to nothing but Bob all day long. Um, I'm sure Bob is a very very healthy percentage, but um, you know I, I go out to all the singer songwriters and the before and afters that sort of you know fork off of fork off of Dylan. Uh, as I said, I was a I was as crazy about Costello for kind of, you know, 20 years before I sort of switched over to Bob. So I still, I still, there's still a lot of Elvis I listen to, but um, I've, I've really tried in the last couple of years to discover new things and branch out. And obviously it's easy with, with the subscription services to, when you hear about something or all these end of the year lists, I go add albums and try to give them a, you know, a fair shake. And um, jazz is the one area I'm really working on you know i kind of have a dabbler's view of jazz and like this and like that but it's i don't understand it i don't have a map of it in my head or know as much as i'd want to so i'm actually putting time energy into that but um so it seems like nothing but bob but i do manage quite a bit now i'm also trying to shift to a higher percentage or at least a minimum of actual critical listening there was not background listening but sitting there focused you know, trying to take advantage of the stereo or the audio file system I've been trying to build. So t- tell me your, your, some, a little bit about your jazz explorations. It, it, jazz has come up a surprising amount in these interviews on the Dylan Tots. Um, so tell me what you've been listening to, what, what strikes you. You know, I, I, I don't even know enough. I mean, I have dozens and hundreds and I've been buying a couple dozen albums recently. And I, my issue with jazz, I mean, my personal goal is, you know, I, I don't know the subgenres, I don't know the relationship. So I know, you know, I like Cannibal Adderley or I like, you know, Miles Davis, I think has his big and diffuse a career as Dylan did. So that's a whole 
you know, world. And I, I know all the big names and I listen to them, but A, I think it takes criti- more critical listening to get inside the music and, and kind of understand what's going on there if you're coming from the outside, right? And again, this analogy to someone walking to a Dylan concert, you know, we've got a million hours or 10,000 hours or more of Dylan training and we walk in and listen. Well, I go down to, you know, there's a club here called Smoke or there's a couple of great jazz clubs down in the, in the village. And I hear it, but I don't, I don't know what's going on. So I, I don't have the map in my head. It's funny. I went the other shows I didn't tell you about, but in 95, which was kind of my pivot for Dylan, I moved to Seattle and a guy at my, where I worked kind of re-engaged me in Dylan. I had knew the eighties Dylan and never got too serious about it. And Dylan came to, uh, played three nights in Seattle. So I was crazy enough to go for all three nights and, and he played 70 some songs. That was back when the set lists were, you know, very rapidly changing. And I still didn't know the names of everything, you know, it, it, that I think that took 10 years to really get this map of, Oh, that's the sixties. This is what happened then. And now you're catching up to 60 years. But at that time I was catching up to, you know, 30 years. So anyway, I, I'm still at the beginning of, of jazz. I, I love it. And, um, I love, I love some of it. But that's the problem. I don't know when I put someone on if I'm going to love it or hate it because I don't know where things lie. And I'm I'm sure there's a simple guidebook somewhere, but I'm just doing it by uh, putting the hours in. I don't, I don't think there's a simple guidebook that's worth reading when it comes to huh. some of these artists. What is the general relationship of the artists that appeal to you to Dylan? None necessarily. I mean, I you know, I, again, I there's a lot of singer-songwriters, which my definition is related to Dylan, you know, that I, that I love many of whom are, you know, unheralded or at least don't have the audience and the respect that I think, you know, they deserve. I like a lot of the Austin kind of, uh, you know, Greg Brown, Towns Van Zandt types, you know, I mean, there's, there's a ton of names there that I love. Um, but there's lots of music that I think is pretty far from Dylan and I can, you know, if there's lyrics, I think Dylan obviously sets the standard for that kind of cerebral expressiveness. But music is, you know, there's a million kinds of music, and a lot of it's really got nothing to do with Dylan. But if there's words, I probably gravitate to some someone that you could draw a tree, and you're not too many lines away from Bob. Yeah. Well, you started saying you were you were drawn to the lyrics, so that makes sense. I mean, when I was talking about critical listening, one of the things I enjoy about trying to, I've been getting back to vinyl and working on high res and really trying to improve the kind of listening environment, which I didn't have again. Like a lot of people, I got lost in there and with, you know, headphones and little speakers for a while. And, you know, one thing you start hearing in better quality sound is the instrumentation, right? You get this sense of, you know, separation and soundstage and and uh, improvements in the sonic quality of the instruments. And all of a sudden you start hearing little guitar parts and, and drumming and things that you don't hear when you don't, you're listening in a critical way or you're not on a system that can provide that. Uh, and I love that particularly for the way it brings the music up because I could listen in to nothing but the lyrics and they could be playing the same tune behind it for every one of them. I probably wouldn't care, but that forces you to enjoy the whole thing and, or helps me anyway to do that, you know, to give the music it's due. Well, Craig, this has been great. I really appreciate it. Um, you have anything you want to add to our discussion? You know, appreciate everything you've been doing here um, with, with both your podcast and your Substack. Having having great things going. I think that, as I said, the amazing thing about Dylan is there's enough ground to cover 
um, and there's a lot of passionate folks like you who, who want to help cover it that uh, I think I think it's helping the fans you know enjoy things better and helping all of us to map this world and, and appreciate it so uh, I'm, I'm having fun doing my part and hopefully we can get everyone to uh, continue to support us so we can keep doing a better job yeah, well, I look forward to your, your ongoing endeavors, and I'm happy to be collaborating with you on some level as well. So I think we're going to have some some great stuff happening in the future, and thank you for that. I think you're going to be a big part of that. Yeah, well, it's 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 fun project. Um, got a lot going on for this new year, and uh, we'll see where it goes. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thanks, Jim. Thank you for listening to the Dylan Tons podcast. Be sure to subscribe to receive the Dillentons directly to your inbox. And please share on social media.